Good morning, church. You all sound good this morning. That's nice. Uh, hope you're doing well this morning. We're glad to have you uh, join us this morning. If you're joining us online, thank you for doing that as well. Uh, we will be continuing our look into the book of Ephesians as we are kind of in the home stretch of this year that we've spent uh, dissecting this book and looking at it. We're going to be moving into a very familiar passage, at least to most of us anyhow, which is the armor of God. Uh, and we're, we're going to take a little bit of a different look. Uh, typically, you know, through this section and what we have so far with the book of Ephesians, because we've kind of hit the book of Ephesians pretty quickly. We've gone over some larger chunks of Scripture. We haven't really taken too much of a deep dive into a lot of the sections that we've uh, you know, gone through in Ephesians. But this, we're going to slow down just a little bit over the next few weeks, and we're going to look at this, the armor of God. Now, last week we covered spiritual warfare, and we talked about how spiritual warfare is something that is very real in each and every one of our lives. In a believer's life, you face spiritual warfare, whether it's something that you recognize at any level or not, or if it's something that we maybe recognize a little bit too much. We spoke last week about how uh, you know, the, the two tendencies, the two ends of the spectrum were uh, you know, more the, the realist, the naturalist kind of approach to spiritual warfare of there not being anything that's spiritual. There's not anything that we face that is, can, should be considered spiritual warfare, that it's all just a product of the world in which we live in and the way that things happen. But then there's the other side, the other extreme, which attributes everything to the devil and the demons. And every, you know, like I said, I think the illustration we used last week was if we get up in the middle of the night and we stump our toe on a piece of furniture, you know, we begin to rebuke Satan. But Paul is closing out his letter to the church at Ephesus and the surrounding areas here, and he is kind of going out with this crescendo. And if you read Paul very much, if you read his writings and his letters in the New Testament, you'll notice that Paul is a very detailed writer. Paul doesn't very often just make points and then move on from them. He, he doesn't make just a simplistic statement of a big idea and not kind of expand on that idea. So that's kind of why we're, we're pumping the brakes just a little bit over these next few weeks and looking at all of these uh, items that Paul begins to tell us about that aid us in our spiritual warfare. So all of this is done in light of what we covered last Sunday about spiritual warfare in a believer's life and it being very real and it being something that we face on a daily basis. So I'm going to go ahead and read our passage of Scripture. I'm going to read the entirety, kind of all of the items of the armor of God, and that's in Ephesians 6. We're going to start with verse 14, where he says, Stand therefore, so he's connecting it, you know, last week with the spiritual warfare, he's connecting it. So stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness. And as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Bow your heads for a quick word of prayer this morning. 
God, we, uh, we are so thankful for the opportunity to be able to be in your word this morning. As we, uh, as we start our week off, I cannot think of a better way that we could start this new week than in your house, with, with our brothers and sisters, in your presence, being able to talk about your word. So Father, I ask that you open all of our ears and our hearts to receive what you would have for us to receive this morning. And God, I pray that you use my voice as your Holy Spirit's instrument to relay the message today. In Jesus' name, amen. So the first item that we see here is in verse 14. Having fastened on the belt of truth. Now, if, if you're like me, many of you, I know that growing up, my scripture memorization version was the King James Version of the Bible. And that states to gird up your loins with the belt of truth. And if there's ever been an argument for modern translations, I mean, I, but we get this idea for, for both of these. And, and I mean, the, the girding up is most definitely accurate. The ESV here talks about it being fastened. And that's kind of the concept of, you know, the, the old saying, we still kind of go by it, like, oh, all right, just, just tighten the belt a little bit tighter, you know, and get after it. And that's, the, that's what Paul is talking to us about here. He's saying that this first item that we need to make sure that we put on is that we fasten the belt of truth. Now, I am learning in my prime middle age years the value of a well-fastened belt. There's one that can relate to me. There's nothing, there's no use for a belt if it's not fastened. It's not tightened. It's not doing you any good. Because you're going to consistently be playing this game, doing this. So it can actually serve as more of a distraction, and it can serve a purpose. As Paul writes this, again, we have to make sure that we put ourselves at least as much as possible into the place of the readers at the time. The people of Ephesus, the people of the surrounding area, which is modern-day Turkey, the, as this letter most likely circulated to several churches in that area. They would have immediately associated, as he's talking about armor, as he's talking about uh, this wardrobe that would be utilized in a battle, in warfare, they would have immediately pictured the Greco-Roman ro army and their officers and the way that they dressed. And it was a critical piece of their armor, which was the belt. The belt was the centerpiece of everything. The belt was what secured the breastplate of righteousness, as we're going to talk about here next week. It, 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 it gave them assistance in holding their sword. Everything, almost every piece of armor, everything that they needed for battle was attached to this belt. So this level of importance, as Paul's writing this, he would, they would have understood this to be the critical piece of armor. Now again, it doesn't make sense to us. We don't put our belt on first. 
At least I hope you don't. But this is the one piece of our spiritual armor that if we do not have it on properly and a proper understanding of it, then all of the rest of it, the, the, the helmet, the sword, the, the shield, the breastplate, the shoes, everything could be in place. But if we don't have this centerpiece of the belt of truth, then the armor is not going to be effective as it needs to protect us. So what is this truth? What is the truth that Paul is writing about here? And as I was reading the commentaries over the past few weeks and leading up to this, there's kind of an argument amongst some that they believe that the truth that Paul's referring to here is the truth of the Word of God. Now, don't misunderstand me as I make this next statement. The Word of God is true, cover to cover. The Word of God is truth. But I don't believe that's what Paul's referring to here. And the reason I say that is because we'll see later on in the armor of God that the sword of the Spirit, that this Word falls in a little bit later in Paul's description of the armor. Some believe that it is living truth ourselves, living in a way that amplifies the truth, that shows forth the truth. But Paul, again, having been a more of a detailed writer, he's just making these one-off statements, right? I mean, as we look at this, Scripture says, having fastened on the belt of truth, and then he moves on to the breastplate of righteousness. That doesn't fit Paul's standard operating procedure in his writings. Paul's not a one-off statement kind of guy. So as we begin to look at what would Paul mean for the belt of truth, in this portion of Scripture. I think it's important that we look back to the, uh, the other chapters that we've already covered in Ephesians because we're going to discover all of these definitions throughout this look at, at the armor of God. So if we look back in the book of Ephesians as to what Paul has already in detail described as truth, we find Ephesians 4.21 where Paul says, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. Ben, uh, I, you know, Kennedy, I like the way she framed that. Spoiler alert, the opening scripture was read by Ben Fritz. She said Ben was reading. Okay. Pathetic attempt at humor number one failed. He is the truth. Jesus is that truth. And that's what Paul is saying. He's already talked to them about this. He's already written about this. He's already instructed them. So as they're reading this letter, they see the belt of truth. Okay, well, Paul's already referenced the truth once in this letter. Remember, he talked about Jesus being truth. So we need to put on the foundation of Jesus Christ, his gospel, and what he taught us. The way that we live, the way that we interpret this passage, that the primary piece of armor that you and I have to have on in our lives to combat the spiritual warfare that the enemy brings onto us is the truth of Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Amen? That is our primary source 
of spiritual warfare. That is our primary defense on the, in the realm of spiritual warfare, that Jesus Christ is the truth. And as we look at this, Paul's also framing something here that the Jewish believers, the Jewish converts at this time, they would have understood this snippet about the armor of God. In Ezekiel chapter 59, verses 14 through 17, it says this, Justice is turned back, and righteousness stands far away. For truth has stumbled in the public squares, and uprightness cannot enter. Truth is lacking, and he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. The Lord saw it, and it displeased him that there was no justice. He saw that there was no man, and wondered that there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm brought him salvation, and his righteousness upheld him. See if this, this verse sounds familiar. He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. And he put on garments of vengeance for clothing and he wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. So Paul was actually describing the armor of God in a New Testament church in a new covenant setting, referring back to one of the Old Testament prophets of Ezekiel when truth was not found in the land. And he says that if you stood up for truth, which is in verse 15, that the truth is lacking, and he who departs from evil, so if you depart from evil, live goodness, live truth, then you make yourself a prey. So Paul is pinning this whole section on spiritual warfare, this whole section on the armor of God, in light of a prophecy that the Jewish converts would have attached this to. They would have been familiar with this passage of Scripture. So Paul would have not only been talking about the truth that he revealed in chapter 4, verse 21, to the new Gentile believers, but he was also revealing the source of truth from Ezekiel 59 for the Jewish converts to when they said that he himself extended, he brought salvation and righteousness and upheld them when he extended his own arm. So he was speaking truth on multiple levels here that the truth that we need to gird ourselves with is the truth of Jesus Christ. And the, the area that the belt goes around your hip area, that's the core area. You talk to any medical professional, you talk to any fitness professional, you talk to anyone that the core of your body is where our strength begins. I had, I was talking, you know, again, prime of middle-aged, uh, your conversations begin to rotate around the surgeries you've had and maybe the medications you're taking. Um, but again, nothing. I'm keeping track. Pathetic attempt at humor number two. <laughs> Crashed and burned. I was talking about, you know, surgeries that I've had. I've had two lower back surgeries. And it's amazing when you're recovering from something that's in your core area, just how much movement of your body is related to your core. Like, I never knew that blinking hurt until I had a back surgery. 
It's like, wow, this is amazing. What happened here? But this is the center of who we are. This is our foundation. And several months ago, I used an example of the foundation, the sturdiness of when our feet are apart and we have a firm foundation here that, you know, you can take, you can withstand pressure, you can take a blow and, and it's, you have a little bit better of a chance than saying that if you're with your feet together, then you have no foundation and you can be moved all about. And you know, and the reality is, if, if I'm on like a basketball or football roster, I stand at like 6'6", six, six, I weigh like 275. Um, but you know, the thing about it is, is no matter how big of a person that you are, if you don't have a firm foundation, if you don't have your core strengthened, then anyone can come around and knock you off your balance. And that's the exact truth with the enemy, and that's why it is so important for us to have Jesus as our belt of truth. And everything, everything revolves around that belt of truth. Everything in our life should revolve around Jesus Christ and his strength. So how do we do this? How do we fasten on this belt of truth? How do we fasten on Jesus to the core of our being? Number one, we need to understand kind of the hierarchy, so to speak, in our relationship with Jesus. In Titus chapter 3, verse 5, it says, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. In one statement, not even in a complete sentence, the hierarchy is established right there. Because he saved us. He saved me. He saved you. And if you're here this morning and you haven't given your heart to Jesus Christ, it's him. It's him. He saved us, not because of the works that we've done. My friends, you weren't good enough. For his grace. You're still not good enough for his grace. You'll never be good enough for his grace. We can't qualify ourselves by works that we've done because we will always fall up, fall short. And if you don't believe me, read your Old Testament. That's a couple thousand years story about how men and women continually fell short in their works trying to be righteous enough to be saved by God. But it's not because of works done by us in righteousness, but it's according to his mercy. So if I'm going to describe to you in maybe some applicable terms, in some practical questions, like how, how do we do this? You know, how do, we, um, how do we know if we've got on the belt of truth? Well, I think that we have to look and ask ourselves a few questions as to who has the final say in your life. Who has the final say? Because putting on the belt of truth around the core of our being means that we get our strength from something other than ourselves. It is a source that is beyond us. It is a source that is outside of ourselves. It is a source beyond anything that we can produce on our own. And then we have to ask the question of, what sources are we looking at? What truth? What's defining truth in our life? Is, is our culture defining truth? 
Do we make sure that we're going along with everything so that we have you know, this, this cultural acceptance that we don't have to worry about it? Is, is our feelings, that's, that's a big, you know, the relative truth. Truth is who you are. Truth is what's true to you. Who has the final say? Do your feelings have the final say what's true to you or not? What about a person? Is it a boss? Is it a spouse? Is it someone you're in relationship with? Is it a brother or sister in Christ? Who has the final say in your life? Because who has the final say is who has the belt of truth in your life. That's who you're getting your strength from. That's the source that you're drawing from is whoever has the final say. Church, Hear me clearly if you hear nothing else out of this message this morning. Jesus Christ has to have the final say in a believer's life. Amen? Jesus Christ has to have the final say in a believer's life. In order for us to fasten up the belt of truth in our lives, in this life, as we are going through trials, as we're going through temptations, as we're going through tribulations, as these things will increase in our lives, as we daily face an enemy and fight spiritual battles, we have to have Jesus having the final say in our lives because your feelings will lead you astray. Your emotions will betray you. Your culture will eat you alive and then spit you back out. A person will use you for their own good and their own benefit. All of these other sources of final says in your life do not have your best interest at heart. But Jesus does. Jesus will never leave you He'll never forsake you. Everything that happens to you is meant for your good. Even if it's not good as you're going through it, God will take it and make it good on your behalf for your good and for his glory. For your good and for his glory. So how do we know if Jesus has the final say in our lives? I think that we can ask four questions just really quickly this morning. And the first one is this is does it honor Christ as Lord? If I'm getting ready to do it, if I'm getting ready to say it, I'm getting ready to post it, in the way that I'm acting, in the way that I'm reacting, in my conversations, how am I as an employee? How am I as a boss? How am I as a wife? How am I as a husband? How am I as a son? How am I as a daughter? All of these things have to be run through the filtration system of does it honor Christ as Lord? If the answer is no, Jesus does not have the final say in it. Can I say that again? If it does not honor Christ as Lord, then Jesus is not having the final say in your life. And if I may add to it, this bold statement, a real deep theological statement, if it doesn't honor Jesus, don't. Just don't. But the second question we can ask, so does it honor Christ as Lord? Next question, does it help in my fight? Is what I'm getting ready to do, getting ready to say, getting ready to be, the way that I handle myself, does it help me 
in this spiritual warfare fight. Remember, the important key from last week is that we do not fight against flesh and blood. Now, what you're getting ready to do, say, speak, type, post, whatever, it may help you in the fight against flesh. But is it helping you in your fight of spiritual warfare? You ever responded like in a conversation or you let off with something just to get it off your chest or you 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 commented on somebody's post that you didn't like and you did that and you felt really good and then all of a sudden you're just kind of like eh, I don't know if I should have done that or not and then all of a sudden the dominoes start to fall and that wonder begins to cease because you're like nope I definitely don't even need to wonder if I should have done that or not. I definitely should not have done that. There's times that it will, something will help our fight against flesh and blood. But Paul's already told us that we wrestle not against flesh and blood. So the next question. Does it increase my love for him? The final say in your life, the decisions you make, the statements you make, the way that you conduct yourself, your relationships, Jesus has the final say, it should increase your love for God. And let me throw this little caveat in here as well. Not only should it increase your love for God, it should give the others an opportunity to increase in their love for God as well. Because we are His ambassadors. We do represent him. If you ever think of that word, represent, we re-present Christ. So whatever we do, whatever we say, is an actual presentation of who Jesus Christ is. I don't like that. Just going to be real honest with you. But it doesn't matter if I like it or not. It doesn't matter if you like it or not. We've already established a hierarchy. It's not about us. It's about Him. And we should be representing Christ in a way that will give people the opportunity to fall more in love with Him. And the last question, I think, in determining who has the final say, does it strengthen my faith? Does it strengthen my faith? And what I'm doing, what I'm saying, what I'm posting, what I'm speaking, who I am, does it strengthen my faith? Or does it just make me feel better momentarily? Does it, does it just help me to just get it out there? Ah, I feel better now. Ah, I feel like trash now. That's usually kind of the dominoes that fall there. But who has the final say in your life. The belt of truth, the source of truth that Paul talks about is Jesus Christ. And in order for that belt of truth to be effective in a believer's life, that means that Jesus has to have the final say in our lives. Not sometimes, not most of the time, not even 99% of the time. But Jesus should have the final say in our life all the time. Amen.